Today we are starting the Gospel of Mark, and we just did the Gospel of Matthew a few weeks ago, and so if you missed that, you can scroll back. And what I my intention is as I go through this is to be uh, brief on on stories that I spoke a lot about in Matthew, um, and I, I you know I drew out a lot of those stories. Those are tended to be my longest uh, recordings of the Bible so far. Uh, so I don't intend to repeat myself. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. But um, but I, my my thinking is to spend more time on the parts of Mark that are different, and um, and then if anything new comes to me that I don't remember saying before, then then I'll probably say that. Mark was uh, probably the first gospel written. Um, Mark, also called John Mark, um, was not an original disciple. So he, I mean, it, it's possible he's one of the hundreds of people that followed Jesus around and they were called disciples also, but he's certainly not one of the 12. Um, there is a long-standing tradition that he was the rich young ruler. And so when we get to that story, we'll point out uh, a thing or two there that would give credence to that. Um, but he did uh, spend some time with Paul and Peter. Now, his time with Paul wouldn't really affect this writing because Paul wasn't there either. Um, and there's, you know, interesting things. We see a lot of growth and maturity in the life of Mark in the writings of Paul because Paul uh, got tired of Mark for, for you know, failing them during a mission and wanted to kick him out. He's related to Barnabas, so Barnabas wanted to keep him. Uh, it's a good chance that they were funding Paul's trips, and so they thought they had a right to do this, and Paul said that, you know, that has nothing to do with anything, so he kicked him out. But later on in Paul's life, we see he, he says Mark was indispensable to him. So we see some maturity going on in the life of Mark there. But we also know through Peter's writings, he spent a lot of time with Peter, and uh, early writings, extra-biblical writings, tell us that uh, Mark cataloged all the stories of Peter that, you know, as Peter would preach. And so he gathered those together, and that's what this gospel is. It's basically Mark's version or, or remembrance. And he may have sat there and, and Peter just told him right to him, and he wrote him straight down as a scribe. Or maybe he just heard Peter preach the same things over and over again, and so he... Uh, compiled them all in a written account. I'm assuming Mark was first primarily because Matthew and Luke are both longer. Those three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels, and that's because they follow a very similar storyline. They have a lot of the same stories in them, although each is unique, and uh, they follow kind of a similar pattern. John is very different. John was written way later, and I think John probably had access to all the other Gospels, and he said, well, I was there, and I've got some different stories that haven't been told, so I better write these down before I die, because uh, John was written very late. Um, Mark was is the shortest Gospel, and so my thinking is that he wrote it, and it was an incredible thing at the time. And then when Matthew and Luke came along, they probably had access to Mark. And they said, well, I'm going to flesh out some more details that were not included in Mark. And so that would make sense to me why those are longer than this one. 
because if you compare this to those, it, you know, a lot of people think it comes up short. But if this is the only gospel, this would have been pure gold to you, right? So anyways, all that makes sense. And the book begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So he, he begins by saying, Jesus as the Messiah was prophesied in this way by Isaiah. And that there would be a messenger crying in the wilderness, and that was John the Baptist. John was living out, completely living on the land, dependent on God alone, and preaching to everyone, saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thongs of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he's pointing to the fact that this Messiah is much greater than I. And everyone thought, at least all the common people thought, John was this amazing prophet of God. So the fact that he was saying Jesus was greater was a pretty big deal. So Jesus shows up, John baptizes him, and he sees the dove come down. And, the, you know, as the, the Holy Spirit come down as the dove, and God says, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And then immediately, Jesus is impelled to go into the wilderness and spend 40 days there being tempted by Satan. And, the, you know, the angels were ministering to him. He was with the wild beasts. And that's all Mark shares about that story. Then we see John is taken into custody, and Jesus comes into Galilee and preaches the gospel of God. So what is the gospel of God? What are the first words Jesus says in the gospels? The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he's not preaching of uh, a salvation, uh, sinner saved by grace. He's preaching of a kingdom of God to repent from our life in the old world, which certainly includes turning away from sin. But it's more than that. It's turning away from carnal life and entering into the kingdom of God which he says is at hand. He is bringing this kingdom. And then Jesus is walking in Galilee, and he sees, uh, he sees Simon Peter, and he sees Andrew fishing, and he says, follow me, and I will make, make you become fishers of men. So he's saying, just as you pull fish out of the lake into the dry land, they're, they're coming from one reality into a completely different reality. I will help you to pull men out of this fallen reality of earthly life and into this kingdom reality. Then we see James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were in the next boat over and they're fishing also. And he calls them, they immediately leave his father and, and their hired servants and they follow him. Then they go into Capernaum, that ends up being his home base for his ministry. And he's preach on the Sabbath. He preaches in the synagogue, and the people are amazed at his teaching. They're amazed because he taught as one that has authority. Most of the teachers would just say, well, this teacher said this, and that teacher said that, and so here I've compiled what a bunch of teachers have to say about this scripture. Whereas Jesus would come and say, here is what the scriptures mean. I receive wisdom and understanding from the Father, and I'm giving them to you. And then we see an interesting story in 23. Um, you know, the people experiencing him, they experience, wow, there's something different about this guy. They have a sense there's something different. But they they certainly aren't thinking, wow, this is the Messiah. 
But what happens? There's a demon in a man, and the demon knows. The demon can see full well who this is. And so he cries out, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So that Jesus is not confused by who Jesus is. He sees in the Spirit. He is Spirit. And Jesus rebukes him and says, Be quiet and come out of him. And so he throws him into convulsions. The unclean spirit comes out with a loud voice. And everyone's amazed. And they start debating, Well, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And so news starts spreading about who he is. When God starts moving in power in an area... The spiritual kingdoms tremble. The spirit, uh, the spirit world of darkness comes against this violently. And angels are, are mustered to assist. But these things aren't, aren't uh, you know, that you don't see them with your naked eye. So uh, it takes spiritual awareness to even realize these things are happening. Other than a lot of times we see the evidence... We see the world shaking in certain ways, the evidence of spiritual activity, but it's not obvious that the fallen man always has another explanation for why things are shaking. Then Jesus comes into the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law is sick with fever, so Jesus speaks to her. She's healed. She gets up and starts serving them. Then many sick and demon-possessed are brought to him, and he heals and he casts out demons. He commands the demons not to speak about who he is. He's not trying to put on a show. He's obeying the Lord, and he's perfectly content to wait on the Lord for the things that the Lord has, for the order of the Lord, for the timing of the Lord. He's not there trying to promote himself. And huge crowds start to gather because something's happening that's never happened before. Miracles are happening. People want to see it. And so Simon and and the other disciples come looking for him, and they find him and say, everyone's looking for you. And he says, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. He said, I came to preach about the kingdom, and now everyone's just flocking around me to see miracles. And so let's go somewhere else where I can preach the kingdom again. And this was the pattern that he he basically spent years doing. I mean, he had other specific things he did along the way, but that's the pattern of what he did. And there's a, a leper that came to him, and he was desperate for healing. And he said, if you were willing, so he, he was desperate for his own healing. He believed Jesus could heal him, and he approached him for it. And Jesus says, I am willing. Be cleansed. And so he was healed, and Jesus told him, you know, Go and see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So Moses had uh, you know, strict commands about what a leper should do and how to prove that you're clean so that you're not having to be you know, staying outside the people. And he says, go and abide by this law. But the leper didn't listen and went around just telling everybody what happened. And the news got to where Jesus couldn't enter a city anymore. And uh, I was in a, a bar a long decades ago. And I saw um, was it Adam Sandler, I think. I don't know. some Somebody famous. And uh, he was just kind of sitting in a corner of the bar. And he was just, you know, enjoying himself with a couple of buddies. And all of a sudden, word started spreading through. This is a different time. I don't think this would happen today. (laughs) But we weren't as used to seeing famous people in Austin back then. And uh, 
the word started spreading through the bar that he was there and all of a sudden all the faces turned towards him and you know all of a sudden everybody wants to talk to this famous guy everyone wants is looking at him it became very uncomfortable for him <laughs> yeah, he's not the messiah but all of a sudden the entire scene you know he came to enjoy the scene and all of a sudden the scene was all about him he had to leave he went somewhere else from there but um Jesus has a purpose, and then when everyone's just all about him, it kind of kills his purpose. It's not a perfect analogy, I apologize, but uh, somewhat of a similar effect <laughs> when everybody all of a sudden just became about the guy. It, it, it no longer became a good atmosphere for the guy. Jesus came to preach the kingdom, but when everyone just became consumed with seeing miracles, it was no longer the atmosphere that he wanted to preach the kingdom in, and so he would go somewhere else where it was a fresh people to which he could preach the kingdom. And so Jesus started staying more in unpopulated areas, so because people were coming from everywhere looking for him. And then we're into chapter 2. After some time, Jesus comes back to Capernaum, and and then people the word gets out again and people start crowding around and they fill up the home so much that there's no room to get in there were four men that wanted to bring their friend who was a paralytic to him to be healed but they couldn't even get in the house so they climbed up on the roof and they broke through the roof <laughs> i always wondered did they come back and fix the people's roof <laughs> I wouldn't be happy if somebody broke through my roof. <laughs> but they dug through the roof and they lowered the uh, pallet in there. And uh, so Jesus sees their faith and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. But there's scribes around and they start reasoning in their heart, Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus is aware of this, and he's aware of their reasoning. And he says, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And so they immediately did. And the people are amazed. They said, we've never seen anything like this. So a couple things to point out. Their reasoning in their hearts. I mean, they're trying to come to terms, the scribes are, with what he's doing based on rationality, based on their own system of beliefs, and based on their feelings. So that's the reasoning and that's the heart. And neither one has a good answer. Things of the Spirit are above man's ways. They are above our rationality. They are above our feelings. And so they're trying to come to grips with the reality of of God in a man, and they're falling short of figuring that out. Uh, meanwhile, they're upset because what he said appears to them to be blasphemous. And so he, because he has said, your sins are forgiven... That is easy to say, but hard to to show or prove that you have the authority to do a thing. So he says, okay, well, which is easier, that or this? Get up, pick up your mat and walk. Well, that's also easy to say, but the evidence that you can do that is actually quite clear. If the man can pick up his pallet and walk, then you actually have the authority to heal him. 
if the man can't, well, then you didn't have the authority to heal him because what you said didn't come true. So he does the second thing in order to prove that he has the authority to do the first thing, which cannot be seen. And that's how he shows evidence that he truly is the Messiah or that he is a son of God raised up after the way of God, given the power and authority of God. This chapter, again, really reminding me of The Chosen. I think I, I, when we dip Matthew, I plugged the TV show The Chosen a couple times, and I'll plug it again. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, and uh, they did a really good job with a lot of these stories, um, creating scenes that um, were are plausible, because they, you know, they created a lot of details. But so here we see that um, he had certain disciples already for quite a while, and then now Matthew is called... And so, again, they, they stuck to this kind of a timeline. And so, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. So Levi, a lot of Jews, still today, Jews often have two names. Um, you, you might know them as one, but their Jewish friends and family might know them as another. Um, and I guess that's a long-standing tradition because a lot of the Jews in the Gospels had two names. So they call him Levi, but he's mostly called Matthew, and he's the author of the, the Gospel of Matthew. And after uh, calling Matthew, he, he goes down and reclines at his house and has a meal with many tax collectors and sinners. The scribes of the Pharisees have a big problem with this, and they say, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus hears him. And he says, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And of course, there's no one righteous. Jesus says there's no one good, not even one. So what is he really saying? He's saying, you think of yourself as righteous. They think of, they, they are fully aware that they are sinful and without God. You think you have God. So I can't teach you. I can't bring you into this kingdom because you think you're already set where you are. This is very much true to religious people of today. If you think you're good, your religion is established, you've got your theology all nice and tight, and you're good with God, then you can't come up any higher. And he says, but these people, they're desperate for, for me. They're desperate for the truth. They're desperate for a new living way, and I can bring them into this way. And then the disciples of John and the uh, Pharisees in training are fasting and they're confused. Why do Jesus' disciples not fast? And so they ask him and Jesus says, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. And so he says, right, right now, they, they are with me. This is, this is a time of blessing and training. There will be difficult times ahead for them. But right now, they will enjoy the fact that I'm with them and I'm teaching them every good thing. And then he gives a, a picture. 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. This is not so much addressing whether they fast or not, but it's addressing the heart of the question. The, the, uh, the disciples of John and the disciples of Pharisees were thinking, hey, we're... we're um, 
you know, we're true, we're we're righteous, we're following after a good way, and your your way is completely different. And uh, what what's the difference here? And Jesus is basically saying, I can't have someone that goes after your way taught up in my way. You must leave everything. You must die to everything in order to be able to receive this new life, this new way that I am bringing my disciples into. If I were to put this new wine into your old wide skin, you would burst. But here, these people, they do not have this religion holding them back. They are fresh and hungry to learn of these new ways, and so they can hold this new wine. And then they're going through the grain field on the Sabbath. And the disciples are actually picking grains and eating them as they walk. And the Pharisees see this and they say, why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He says the Sabbath was to worship the Lord, come closer to the Lord, and have a time every week, once every seven days, to be dedicated to the Lord. So we grow closer to Him and realize He's the giver of life. He's the reason for life. He's the way of life. And he says if if the laws of the Sabbath are just to enslave us, then that's missing the point. The Sabbath is to worship the Lord, follow the Lord, grow closer to the Lord. He said that's what these disciples are about. So whether they eat grain along the way or not is completely irrelevant because they are giving their lives to me. Here you are sitting here saying I'm following these laws, but you're skeptical of my way. You're skeptical of my life. Here they are giving their lives entirely to me. So what matter is it if they eat some grain or not? You're not eating the grain, which may be a correct interpretation of that little slice of the law, but the entire law points towards me and you're completely missing me because you're so set in your religious ways. And then we're on to Mark 3. And then Jesus enters the synagogue on Sabbath and they're trying to set him up. They have a man with a withered hand there and they want to see if Jesus is going to heal him because that's unlawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus sees him. He says, get up and come forward. And so he realizes he's being set up. And so he he does this in such a way as to address the setup before he uh, steps in it. And so he asks everyone, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And so, looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was completely restored. So the Pharisees are upset now, but he turned their plot around on them so that they didn't feel that they could accuse him because he had uh, staged it in such a way that uh, they would look like the jerks. And yet, they're seething because, again, he's come against their religious understanding. And so they withdrew out to the Sea of Galilee area, and people are just crowding around him to the point where he asked his disciples to get a boat so that he could get a little space between him and the crowd. And every time people would touch him, when when there were unclean spirits, uh, demons in them, 
they would uh, fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. And he was not wanting this known yet. So he was telling them to be quiet. And then he goes and and uh, went up to the a mountain. He went on top of a mountain, summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. He appointed the twelve. So the twelve disciples, this is where he appoints them as his twelve official disciples. He Again, he had many disciples. His crowd would follow him around. But these are the twelve that he's closest to and training up uh, the most closely. And when he came back, again, the crowds are just gathering around him so he can't even eat. And uh, his own people, his family, heard of this. And uh, so they come to grab him because they're thinking he's lost his senses. Meanwhile, the scribes are saying he's possessed by Beelzebub. He casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And so he calls them to himself and began speaking, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. So he's saying the kingdom of darkness has order, just as God has order. Uh, The world is not living according to God's order, but he is a god of order. The kingdom of darkness is also under a strict authority. There's, I, I heard uh, uh, Derek Prince teach on this, and it's really stuck with me ever since. Um, that uh, a third of the angels, you know, were thrown down, and we we know of, of uh, whether we want to call him Lucifer, or Satan, whatever. And then Michael and Gabriel kind of is the three big ones that are always mentioned. And so the idea is, you know, this is not strictly laid out in the Bible. So take it or not, it's up to you. But the idea that Satan was in charge of a third of the angels. And so he and his angels that are ordered underneath him were the ones that rebelled. And so anyways, if you have that picture in mind, then you can see he's got an orderly kingdom of darkness. And so he says it's not going to turn against itself. Um, but if uh, I were to come and and clean somebody, the, those those darknesses, those evils working in a person much, must be bound first. If you're going to take over a house, you have to remove the prior inhabitants. And if someone wants to let me into their house, these other things must be removed. He says, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So Jesus is willing to forgive anything. He came to forgive, but the way of God is imperative. And if we refuse to go the way of God, that is eternal sin. He gives us many chances. But if we know the way of God and we turn against it, that is eternal damnation. Then his mother and his brothers show up and they're looking for him. And they so people say, hey, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And so Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? He looks at those around him and said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is a hard teaching for most people that the spiritual relationships are actually higher, more important than the earthly relationship. Because we all, well, just about all of us grew up in a family. 
And those, you know, those relationships are incredibly important to us. But he's saying there is a higher reality. There is a family of God. Ideally, they're one and the same. But because we're in a broken world, that's not often how it was. And when we come to these truths, the spiritual relationships are higher and more important. Jesus makes that really clear here. It's not to say it's unimportant in our family relationships, but if those two things should be uh, apart from each other, in this case, his family, his earthly family, is trying to get him to go away from the calling of God. And he says, no, I absolutely will not listen to that family relationship. I am about the calling of God, and these people here are about the calling of God with me, and so we will do what God is calling us to do. And then we're on chapter 4. And then he tells the parable of the sower, where certain seed fell on good soil, certain seed was in rocks, certain seed was in thorns. And we covered this in more detail in Matthew. But he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He says, different people receive the exact same message different ways. It's not, the message of the kingdom is not coming through persuasive speech that persuades everybody. You've seen... um, you know, mighty orators, wow, huge crowds, but there's no life in that. You see mighty orators convince hundreds, thousands, millions of people to turn in evil ways. Um, But that's not the kingdom. The kingdom comes as a spiritual message that's received by faith. And when it is received by faith, it is up to the hearer to either receive a part of it, more of it, all of it. And to the degree that we give ourselves to this faith and to this kingdom, this message, that's the degree to which we are fruitful. And Jesus explains the parables to his disciples. He says, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven so he says, everyone, this is, you know, Isaiah talks a lot about this, other prophets in the Old Testament. Um, this is a reality of God, that we have perfect capabilities in the natural, and we can receive the same message as another. And the one who has spiritual eyes and ears and hunger to see and receive will receive the message, and the one who doesn't will not. And that person will come up with a perfectly rational explanation why this message is not true. And they might use scripture to back up their message, but that doesn't mean they have eyes to see because they do not. So there are some that reject the message right away. There's some that receive the message in joy, but then concerns of the world or persecutions or just other selfish desires uh, come in and they leave the message because... Maybe they become rich, and, and so they love the things of the world instead of the things of God. And again, as I often say, <laughs> up until right now, as I record this, everyone in America is rich. Even though even though a huge chunk of the population is out of work at the moment, the government's just sending out money in parachutes, so people have time to go rioting and stuff. Um, you know, everyone, you got a phone in your pocket, you go back... 50 years and kings did not have phones in their pocket. The richest men in the world did not have phones in their pocket. You are very rich and that richness can be an easy distraction from the way of God. And so 
It's up to each one of us. What do we choose each day, each moment of each day? Do we choose him or do we choose the world? This is an important question and how much he takes root in our lives and whether we bear 30, 60, or 100 fold fruit. Then Jesus explains, you don't take a lamp and put it under a basket. You put it on the lampstand, right? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So he's saying God has hidden plenty of mysteries. Uh, Paul talks about this a lot. Certainly Ephesians talks about it. Um, but the mysteries aren't there to be hidden. In the, was it the proverb says that, um, I can't remember it, but something to the effect of it, it's the, it's the pleasure of kings or it's the, it's the good way of kings to seek out these mysteries. Uh, that's a horrible blunder of, of a recollection of a proverb, but the, P, Paul talks about, you know, these mysteries of the kingdom and, and they're mysteries because Adam turned away from the way of God. So these things, which otherwise would have been much more freely systematically given, instead are mysteries that we have to fight through into the kingdom to receive and grasp. But then now we're in a time when God is revealing more and more of these things. And so we have to have eyes to see and ears to hear in order to receive them. And Jesus is saying, hey, that it's, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it would come to light. Meaning, you, the whole purpose of these things is to give them to you. And so he says, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. So, take care what you listen to means, where do you put your attention? Are you putting your attention on God or things of the world, things of your own flesh? For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have... Even what he has shall be taken away from him. This this maybe doesn't go by the uh, politically correct version of what's just and fair, but God's not interested in that. God's interested in people who want him above all else. And for those, he will raise us up to complete his purpose for mankind. And when you understand that his purpose in mankind is for us to inherit everything that he is and everything that it ha- that he has... Well, that's far more incredible than anything that would distract you. And so why wouldn't you want to give everything to this? But it's a fight. It's a battle because we are in a battle that we cannot see. And those forces that are against us want to distract us in every way possible. So here's a parable of the seed that I don't think is in Matthew 26. The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and he goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows, how he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, and then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. So Jesus is saying, if you're a farmer, you're planting seeds, and you're watching, and then when it looks like the time is right, you're you're uh, putting the sickle to it, you're harvesting. He says, but you have no idea how the dirt raises the head out, how, how the crop itself grows. That is completely beyond your control. But you see certain aspects of it, and so you participate in those aspects that you do understand, and God does the rest. It's the same with the kingdom. We are not capable of maturing ourselves. If you put everything on yourself to 
pull up your britches and, and make yourself mature in the Lord, you cannot do it. You have to be dependent on him. It has to be a life of faith and a walk of faith. However, that's not to say that this is just random occurrence that happens and you're not involved. We do give ourselves to him for this process. We do desire him. We seek him. And he does the growth. So it's a two-way street. He is the one that is all-powerful in order to give, put eternal life into our carnal bodies and bring the kingdom of God, the heavenly reality of his life, into us, a person trapped in a, in a dying body at this moment. He's all-powerful and not only willing, but that's his plan for us. But we have to agree to the plan. We have to seek him for this. We have to continually separate ourselves from the world and say, I want you. I want all that you are, all that you have. And that's our part in it. So we can't do the amazing miraculous part, but we have to do the part that is, you know, up to us. If you think about when the, uh, when Israel took the promised land, um, you know, for, for Jericho's the story I always give. Jericho was a, a, a such a strong city, such strong walls, nobody could take it. Um, so what God do? He had them march around seven times and then seven times or six times and seven times. Um, and so their part seemed kind of foolish, but their part was obedience. And then God brought down the wall so they could have the great victory. And it's the same with the spiritual life. We can't do the amazing things, but we can walk in obedience and he will do the amazing things. And then he moves on to the parable of the mustard seed. And it's, that's that same picture. The kingdom starts out very small in us. And then the more we seek him, the more he will grow it into where it becomes from a tiny seed to a mighty tree. Just as the kingdom came with Jesus as one seed sown in the ground of, of humanity. So now we have you know, many millions that follow after his way. And, and this is only just beginning to come into the fullness of what he lived for. Uh, so it, it's both throughout all humanity, it's also throughout a, a person. This tiny seed is planted, and it's still a mostly you know, selfish, carnal person. But the more we seek after him, the more the seed grows into us to make us a mighty tree. And it says he pretty much just taught them in parables. He, didn't, he would explain to his own close disciples what he meant. But for most of the people he's talking, he just spoke in parables. And then Jesus says to them, let's get in the boat, go on the other side. And so they do. And he decides to take a nap in the front of the boat. And the storm whips up. And the, the disciples are afraid the boat's going to break up and they're all going to drown. And so they wake him up and they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He gets up, rebukes the wind and said, hush, be still. And the wind dies down and it's perfectly calm. And he says, then why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very afraid. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So Jesus understood we are on God's purpose here. We have a purpose. We are about God's work. A storm is not going to come and destroy that work. Why would we even be afraid of such a thing? Now, there's lots of reason to have fear when we live according to the world. 
And you look around the world right now and everyone's in fear. Well, it's because they're not living according to the way of God. If we're living according to God, why would we fear anything other than God? If we are living according to his life that he calls us to, then there's no place for fear because anything that comes again, we certainly might have difficulties, even the storm, maybe you can, that's a kind of a small difficulty. But God will bring us through everything that he needs to bring us through in order to fulfill his purposes. And if we are living according to those purposes, there's absolutely nothing to fear. And that's living in faith. Or at least one aspect of it. And that's it for today. God bless you.